Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And he left there, Jesus, and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband, and marries another, she commits adultery. You may be seated. We're continuing going through our, our series on Mark and looking at the, the path of the king. And I think Brad told us from the very, very first week that we were here, and those of us that teach, we, we've, we've reminded you that there's one key passage in Mark chapter 10 that's the focus of the rest of the book of Mark. And it's this, in chapter 10 and verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now listen, I know just when I read that passage, there's a lot of heaviness. Because I know sitting in here, there might be people that are divorced. A lot of us, children of divorce, best friends, siblings, divorced, and we know the hurt that comes along with it. But the reason we have to keep this key verse in focus is because the gospel is what we hang our hat on here. Hill City, we're a gospel-centered church, and this is the focus of where we're going. Why do I say that? Because I know with this much hurt, we're not going to back up and revisit that today. That does very little good in this setting. We look for the healing that's in Jesus Christ. We look for him to heal the hurt. I pray that today, I've prayed more for this sermon. Listen, out of 20 years of teaching, this is one of the most difficult. And I've prayed that God would just take unforgiveness and bitterness and turn it into forgiveness. I pray that he would heal hearts. I pray that he would take the angst and the anxiety that has come from this, this subject that's so practical and real, and that he would just turn it into his peace and his joy and his love. And so as we walk through, continue to walk through the book of Mark, today is going to be about looking forward, about moving forward. And this is so simple. Four words I want you to remember. So when you leave here today, four words, and then I think you'll remember what they're attached to. We're going to get a little bit junior high here, so stick with me. The first one is no. So the first one is... You guys are great. 
The second one is believe. So it is. You guys are sharp. The third one is grow. So we walk all the way back. We've got what? Grow. And this one's leave. We're going to expound that a little bit. But when you leave here today, I want you to know something. Intellectual knowledge. And then I want you to hopefully transfer that intellectual knowledge into experiential knowledge and to be able to believe something. But not only believe that, because intellectual knowledge that turns into belief doesn't just all of a sudden turn into spiritual formation or sanctification. It it takes growth. But then when you start growing, there's going to be things that you leave behind in this world. It's going to be that simple. So the historical context of the passage, because so many times we want you to know what the Bible says. Like this text at service level, it's just not easy to understand. There's a lot more that goes into it historically. And that's why this is so tough. So what we can't do today is it can't be a seminar on divorce and remarriage. Well, what are the grounds for divorce? Who can get remarried? Listen, that's for a different day, and we will do that. We would love to do that here. You know we love to teach, and we love to do seminars, but that can't happen this morning because that's not what even this, t- this text is about. That's not what Jesus was doing in the text. We can't do that. We have to move forward. But what the context is, in verse 2, it, you just pick it up, and it says, and Pharisees. Now, I know Brad has told you what he relates Pharisees to, which is a medical condition. I get it. Listen, I don't care. I know for a fact that there are plenty of people who, if somebody were to walk up to you today and go, hey, can you just explain to me who the Pharisees were? You'd be like, people in the New Testament, right? Listen, there are some of you and there is no shame. You're new to the Bible. You might have been in church for a long time and I don't know, they're just a group of people. Okay, so in the Old Testament, you get done reading your Old Testament. Are Pharisees in the Old Testament? No. And all of a sudden, you get to the New Testament, and who's all over the place? Pharisees. So in the Old Testament, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you've got an intertestamental period of 400 years. Sometimes you hear it referred to as the 400 silent years. About halfway through that time period, there arose a party, a group of people, the Pharisees. Stephen, what were they? Were they religious? Yes. Were they political? Yes. Were they educational? Yes. See, in Judaism, the law, when God gave the, the Jews the law, that was their everything. Everything ran through the law. So whether it was politics or religion or education, it was a way of life. It was all-encompassing. In fact, a little side note, whenever Jesus shows up, he's not trying to convert people from Judaism to Christianity. He's showing them a new whole way of life. It's everything. It's all-encompassing. So what does being a Christian mean? Oh, yeah, it will influence your politics. It will, your political leans. It will, your decisions. What about religion? Yeah, that's what it is. It's following him. What about education? Sure, it is a whole new way of life. So the Pharisees show up about halfway in between that period. And what you've got to know is they're all males. 
And listen, why do I say that? You have to understand, because who is he going to be talking to today in this text? The Pharisees, who are males. So they emerge about halfway through. And I love this quote in Haley's handbook. It says, the Pharisees took the scriptures and believed that it was their responsibility to determine how the law should be applied to new, new conditions. Because see, for years, the Jews did not have to worry about anybody ruling over them. But at the time of Christ, Rome was ruling over them. So these new conditions, the Pharisees were the ones deciding how the law applied to their new life. And how it should be necessary and reinterpreted. And see, in the law, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament that they were supposed to obey. And the Pharisees would create what they called fence laws. So just so that you wouldn't break the 613, they created thousands more so that you wouldn't break those. So by the time Jesus is alive, there's thousands of laws that you have to keep when really... Out of Jesus' words, out of the 613, they could be boiled down to how many? Two. Two. Love God, love your neighbor. That was it. He boiled it down when he was asked. He goes, out of the 613, there's 10 that people know, but there's really two that you live by. But instead of going backwards and going, okay, that's the spirit of the law. We love God and we love others. The Pharisees are like, nah, let's just add a bunch and just create more weight that people have to carry around. And listen, the Pharisees, when you read through here, the religious elite, they get a bad rap. But I'm just going to tell you, if, if we Christians were translated back then, the Pharisees would be the people that, well, yeah, we just, we look up to them. They're the keepers of the law. They're the ones always talking about holiness, even though we know, because Jesus exposed them, that, no, not always holy. In fact, a lot of times, you are the darkest of the dark. But they are the ones we would want educating our kids. They loved education. They loved being conservative. And they loved God. But in this, Jesus exposes their, their intentions again. That's the Pharisees. That's who we're dealing with. In Mark chapter 10, verse 2, the Pharisees came up. And in order to test him, they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Their motive and their intent when they came was evil. They were trying to trap him again. In fact, the last time in Mark that you see the Pharisees is in chapter 8. And you know what they're doing? They're trying to test him and trick him and get him to say something that'll get him in trouble. And see, what they're doing is they're asking him a question that meant something to them. Because for a long time, there had been a rabbinical debate. The Pharisees weren't even agreed on divorce within themselves. There were two major thoughts. There was a rabbi named Shammai that he said, no, no, no. Divorce, adultery only. That's the only grounds for divorce. But yet there was another that came after him, Hillel, a Pharisee that was very influential that said, eh, you can divorce for any reason. Now let me ask you, knowing the evil and the darkness of man, which do you think gained popularity? Adultery only or men? You just divorce whenever you want. Now remember, he's speaking to Pharisees who are Males. In this social context, legally, a woman, if she was wealthy enough and had means, which was extremely small amount, she could divorce. But women were absolutely tied financially, emotionally, 
all these ways to their husbands. And if their husbands divorced them, it left them destitute. So we're not just dealing with apples to apples to today, are we? There's a lot of similarities, and we'll see those that carry over. But a different culture and a different time, these women were essentially powerless. And that's why he's talking to them. They're the males. They came before him and asked him. And so that's the debate. So they're coming and saying, who are you going to align yourselves with? Those of us who believe adultery only or those of us who believe for any reason? Now, what's funny in the text of Mark, he actually doesn't use the phrase for any reason. We get that out of Matthew. Mark is short. He's concise. But the readers that were reading Mark would have understood in a heartbeat when he said, get a divorce. They would have said, oh, for any reason, because that is what we do today. That's the debate. Everyone is following Hillel. The context is men divorcing women when he's talking to the Pharisees. And in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, he answered them and said, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. In reality, it wasn't a divine commandment. It was a divine concession due to man's depravity. God designed marriage, and we humans designed divorce. God divines, he, he designed marriage. He never intended for that. And then sin snuck in in Genesis chapter 3. Well, what they're referring to is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And it's this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in her hand and sends her out of his house. So this is the Old Testament passage that Jesus says to them, what did Moses say? And in reality, what's crazy when you read this, it's not even talking about divorce. It's talking about remarriage, and then only it's a small portion of people. So if you divorce your wife and send her away, she gets remarried, divorced again, you never can marry her again, and no one knows why. But God said that. People can, they can uh, guess, they can have conjecture, but we don't know. There's no mandate for divorce or grounds for divorce anywhere in the law. He never says, this is when you get a divorce. This is why you should get a divorce. He doesn't. And in fact, if you noticed and think underlined in that passage in Deuteronomy, it says, for some indecency, which in that context is an adultery, because I'm going to ask you, and this is why it's so different from today, if a man or a woman during the period of the Old Testament and the law were caught in adultery, what was the punishment? Death. Death. How many of you, even today, you just... Whew. That's what God gave to his people so that they could live as a light among the other ancient Near Eastern cultures that did all sorts of things perverse with marriage. That was what he gave them. So some indecency, that little phrase, is what the Pharisees in Jesus' day are arguing about. Well, some indecency can mean she just didn't heat the meal up or cook well. And you're like, well, that's an extreme. That's what they were doing. They were divorcing for any reason and getting a younger wife just because they wanted to. 
That's the question. That's the, the cultural context of what's going on. In Mark 10, verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote to you this commandment. Because of the sin. He said, I created marriage, you created divorce, but because of the hardness of your heart, God allowed it. He conceded. So I just wanted to think, what's the first thing I want you to do? I want you to know. I want that no to turn into believe. We want the belief to turn into grow. And when we grow, we I want you to know God's design, his design for marriage. And some of you are like, I've got that down. I know what he expects. But listen, not everyone else in here does. And I want to encourage you today, and this won't be the only time I say it. There's some of you in here today that you know it. But listen, in two and a half months, we're going to get 300, maybe more, coming back into our gatherings at Hill City that they don't know. And they need someone to teach them. They need someone to look at and model after them as they model after God and model after Christ. I want you to know what is his design, his purpose for marriage. And then once we know what it is, I'm going to ask you, I, I want us to believe it. Like believe that God's wisdom and his design is best. Believe it. Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. I love how he says that in Matthew too. He looks at the Pharisees and said, have you not read? When you read the Gospels, is Jesus not, does he not dig? And is he not sarcastic? I mean, he's digging at them. Because who better than anybody should know the law? He says, have you not read? From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Listen, in a culture where this was one of the most important issues, and in that culture, the Pharisees were arguing, and they were always leading people astray with what they were teaching and what they were doing. Did God even, did Jesus as God even hesitate to speak into it? Not once. I want for us to be people that unapologetically will speak into our culture and say, this is what we believe that God's design for marriage is. It's that simple. You know, he goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 with his design. And in every passage we look at today, it's going to be because they go back and they look at that. Because see, when we as humans start messing stuff up, he says, just look back to the pattern. Just live your life according to the pattern. Teach people according to the pattern. And one thing I felt just necessary to address today. Now listen, this is an open-handed issue. This is never a test of fellowship. But listen, I will say this. In this day and time, it's so tempting for people to go back to the book of Genesis and they say, yeah, you know what I've heard? You know what I learned in school? You know what a lot of the books say? And for some of you theologians, you read Walton and you read Collins and you read William Lane Craig and it says Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are different from 12 through 50. And listen, I'm excited because after Mark, we're going to spend maybe even years in the book of Genesis and I can't wait to get there. But listen, 1 through 11, they will say it's figurative. 
Well, then 12 through chapters 12 through 50 are, are literal, but we take chapters 1 through 11 as figurative. It's like, well, I mean, it's just stories that represent truth, and we teach those. And listen, they will write pages and pages that sound so good, and you're like, oh, yeah, well, it kind of makes sense, except for the things that they don't tell you. You're like, why are you getting so worked up? Give me just a minute. The problem is you've got genealogies in Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 10, in Chronicles, and in Luke that have actual humans that go all the way back to who? Adam. So when does a figurative person, a figurative person, a figurative person all of a sudden become literal? It doesn't make sense. When Moses was guided by the Spirit to write Genesis, he never indicates, in fact, he does otherwise, that chapters 1 through 11 are figurative. In fact, the way he structures the book, the literary structure of the book, is that everything that happened in 1 and 2 that he said happened, happened. And say, listen, the whole creation-evolution debate is what skews it, but what you don't understand, the only fact that matters is when Jesus is asked and when Paul is asked, they think that Adam, that Noah, that Eve were literal humans, and it happened just the way that God said it did. And so, for me, I'm with Jesus and I'm with Paul. You can't be an objective person that reads the New Testament and go, yeah, I think it's just, it was just figurative. No, Jesus is clear. Paul is clear. That is how the world began. That's how humans began. Why is that important? Because truth is important. In a day and time where you can just make up things, it's important. Why? When you build a house, what is the most important part of the house? The foundation. And listen, we have to speak into a culture that's tearing down the house and they're coming for the foundation. Doesn't mean we have to be jerks. Doesn't mean we have to be outright mean. But it means we take a firm stand the way that Jesus did and say, you got to go back to his intention. And we have to try to model after that. I want you to know that that's his design. He goes back to how he created in taking two people and bringing them together to become one. In fact, we'll look later in Ephesians, he calls it a mystery. When two people come together and have intercourse in his model after marriage, that that is something that is both physical and spiritual, it's holistic, and these two people become glued together. That's why divorce hurts so much, is because two people that are glued together just get ripped apart. And it was never meant to be. Believe in God's divine wisdom for marriage. Like I said, we, we still have a few, but we're missing 300 people that just need this model for them and how they date and how they talk, and how they introduce. Listen, it's a culture of, hey, send me nudes. It's just a culture. But when you know the foundation, that changes everything. It has to be something that, that we teach our children. Listen, those of you parents, listen, when your kids get to four and five, I'm just going to be dogmatic. You've got to start the conversation. 
It's always awkward. It's always weird. It can become less weird when you start it young, and it's not a one-time talk. It's a continual dialogue as they grow up. But they have to learn God's purpose of marriage from you. It's the church's responsibility to reinforce what you teach. But listen, hear my heart. In a world that's so just corrupt, they need it from us on what God's design is, and then they have to believe it. They have to believe that that is best, that waiting until they're married is best. And you're like, but I made mistakes. It doesn't matter that you still teach them and help them believe it. Sometimes we feel inadequate because we know we made mistakes, and so we feel like, well, who am I to talk? You are the parent and the primary disciple maker in your home that needs to teach them. Listen, I'm so excited. My wife is planning for this fall, hopefully, that we get to do an ID class here, an identity class. For some of you of, of, of children that get into upper elementary, and we can partner with you and help you navigate and talk to them about the craziness that's going on in our culture. And out of a model that is how God intended for marriage to be. I can't wait to provide that for you. That would be just absolutely marvelous to partner with you in that. Because some of you, I know you're like, I need help. I just don't even know how to start navigating some of this stuff. Listen, uh, my boys are 20 and 18. I, we got a little bit of it. But some of you that have little ones now, you are just, you're in the deep end. You're in the deep end. And hopefully the ID class will be, will be a floaty. You're like, Steve, and I just... We talk about this stuff, but I just don't want to be seen as intolerant, as a bigot, unsophisticated, ignorant. There's so much more to Christianity that you'll be seen that way anyway. You know, this is just a small part of it. Sin and foolishness, it always leads to hurting others. When we don't believe in the pattern, it just leads to hurt. Mark chapter 10 he goes on, and in the house, the disciples asked him again. Because you know the disciples, like always, they're just like open mouth, like, what did he just say? But the Pharisees believe this. What? what? And so they get alone. That was the public presentation by the Pharisees. This is the, the private teaching from Jesus to the disciples. He said, whoever divorces his wife, no, in the text, it doesn't have this, but I'm telling you, from Matthew and from the culture, it would, they would have just been thinking for any reason. That was it. What was going on at their time? He says, whoever divorces his wife just for any reason and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And you know the disciples probably even want to have a follow-up there. Um, so can we do a seminar on the grounds for divorce and remarriage and all? You know that just, but Jesus, he, he engages. You notice how he engages differently with both groups? So grow, what's the connection? The passages that we're going to look at for grow, the connection is the references to Genesis 1 and 2. They go back to the pattern. Whether it's divorce and remarriage, whether it's sexual immorality, fornication, husbands loving their wives, guess what the model is? Genesis 1 and 2. And his design for marriage. 
the continuation from know to believe to grow. He said it's just how it should be. You have to have your intellectual knowledge and what the, what the head doesn't know, the heart can't believe. Jen Wilkins says it all the time. And then that's not enough. In order to believe something, there has to be that, that redemption of affections. Your affections have to be set on something else. You have to love something else. And then we leave. We leave something behind. The context is husbands, the headship and leadership in the home. In Ephesians chapter 5. If any of you guys are you're new to Hill City and you want to know, you can go back in the sermons, I think, I don't know, six, seven months ago when we were teaching through Ephesians, and you can hit that. We're unapologetically complementarian here. We believe that, that every single male and female are equal in essence and dignity, but there were different roles by God given, and that the males have headship and leadership in the home. Why? God chose it that way. That means that we, directly as men, are accountable to God for how we lead and how we love in our home. He says in Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. I love myself a lot. That's a high standard to love her as much as I love myself. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Therefore a man, he goes back, the same pattern, the same design. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. He said, what is that God can take two people and he can stick them together holistically and that they become one? He said, it's a miracle. It's like Christ in the church coming together as one. It's a pattern. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Listen, what we want for you is a gospel-centered, kingdom-focused, disciple-making marriage. And listen, it's going to take us Listen, I'm talking to everybody. Please, men, hear me. It's going to take us leading in the home. It's going to take us leading in love so that our kids, so that our wives, they see this pattern reinforced that we love Jesus. We have to be the ones saying, hey, there's a study going on at church. Let's jump in. Let's engage our kids in the talk. Let's figure out who our kids are hanging out with. Let me show you how to serve. I want to serve you. I want to love you. Listen, men, it's our God-given responsibility. And when we don't do it, everything in his pattern, everything in his design, it just breaks down. Some of you have seen homes where there's no leadership. And so, because it's broken down, the mom has to just bear the weight that is just incomprehensible. Not only day to day, but the spiritual everything. And that's just not God's design. I just pray that a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, Hill City is a church made up of men who are just driving their home towards Christ. I don't know. I've never met her. 
maybe there's some out there, a woman that's just like, you know, I don't know. That sounds kind of chauvinistic. You mean he thinks of me first. He loves me like Christ loved the church, and he wants to lead me in that. Uh, I'll pass. God's design is perfect. We know it. Will we believe it? And then will we, will we grow in that? Will we grow in love? Man, we have to love them like Christ loved the church. Why? Because we were never meant to be ripped apart. I really believe that for them. I know there's always outliers. Well, I've never heard about this one. Listen, when we love like that, that is holding fast with what God has stuck together. Gospel-centered, kingdom-focused, disciple-making marriages. See, what I, what, I, what I want more than anything, and when we taught through Ephesians, we said this. When we did the marriage seminar, we taught this, is I want more than anything for you to have a great marriage and to be able to leverage that marriage to make disciples because a team of two is so much better than one. And some of you, you're like, if you just knew the dysfunction in our house right now, that seems incomprehensible. You know Will you believe, and will you take steps towards growth? That's it. Will, will you lean towards growth instead of just throwing your hands up and being like, we're done. Just can't do it anymore. I just, it's just too hard. This is a book that I'm going to refer to that every, I would recommend to every single person in here. In fact, if you have kids and if you work with younger generations, Jonathan Grant used to have a church in London, and London was years ahead of the Midwest. So he was dealing with these things 20 years ago that we're dealing with now and really engaged in an awesome way to, to engage people on sexuality and gender identity and marriage and all these things the way that God designed it in, in London, which is, I don't know if you know this, is a very secularized city. He says this book in Divine Sex, a compelling vision for Christian relationships in a hypersexualized age. We are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. There's some of you right now stuck in between believe and grow. And you're like, you know, to be quite honest, I know. And I believe it. But I'm just stuck because I, I've figured out that being in the middle of believe and grow, it's, it's painful. And I've spent a season in grow, and it's really painful, and there's sacrifices. And I say, yeah, that's the Christian life. To do anything after the pattern of Jesus is hard. It's difficult, is it not? Walking the path of Jesus is difficult, whether it's marriage, whether it's anything else. It's a great book. The book that we recommended when we did the marriage seminar, Paul David Tripp, just called Marriage. It's a great book. I love his first chapter on a kingdom mindset. Listen, when we come into marriage and it's all about happiness, guess what? It doesn't work out real well. Like I told you when I taught through Ephesians, it's like two ticks and no dog. Just two people sucking the life out of each other with no life source. With God as the life source. Because see, listen... God can meet needs that we have that our partners can't meet. There's just things that your partner can't meet that God was intended to fill. And when he's the life source, it, it helps 
two people, not just consume each other. He says this, we struggle with God's plan because at street level, we don't really want what God wants. We want what we want, and we want him to deliver it. But it's not, that's not the plan. And I just immediately think to how many people, well, yeah, I know I'm dating somebody that doesn't love Jesus, but I just, this is the kind of guy I want. I mean, he's got to be like 6'1". Oh, you want God to deliver something that's out of his will. Talk about unrealistic expectations. And when people have unrealistic expectations, you get what? Disappointed with God. Almost every week in Citigroup, I'm sure it's not relevant to anyone in here, talks like that. You see, God didn't give us a grace to make our kingdom work. He gave us his grace to invite us to a much, much better kingdom. Marriage is a beautiful thing. In fact, we just sang it. He can take those things and make it beautiful, can't he? It's a beautiful thing that only reaches what is designed to through the methodology of a painful process. Our problem is that we don't like the difficulty of any kind. We hate pain. We despise suffering. There are so many of us that would rather have an easy life than a God-honoring one. The rest of the book is even just as good. Highly recommend Marriage by Paul David Tripp. I know there's some of you here. You're in the deep end. I pray for you. you. Don't give up. It's similar to Christian life. Once you're in between, believe and grow. You're in the right place if you're walking towards grow. What about leave? There's one more time that Paul refers back to Genesis 1 and 2. And listen, in a church that's so similar to the United States today, if you had to take all of the letters in the New Testament and you say, well, Stephen, which one is the closest in, in culture, in society, in ideology to the United States? It's the church of Corinth. And one after another, he has to tell them, this is what's wrong. This is what you're doing. This is what you're doing. And then he hits chapter 6, and he's talking about sexual idolatry and that it was just such a sexually perverse country. Like Jonathan Grant says, hypersexualized. And this is what he writes to them. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Like you become one. Whenever we accept Christ and we pass, pass from death to life, we're one with him. And he says, You take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Where are we at? No. Believe. Grow. And listen to those of you men that are like, I need to step up and lead my home. I need to grow in love. I need to grow in love. I need to grow in how I serve. There are going to be things that you have to leave behind. So many homes in our culture, the men have given up because they love this. They love it on their phones. They love to run it over and over in their mind. And some, God forbid, actually live it out and aren't faithful. 
And Jesus makes it abundantly clear in Matthew chapter 5. He's like, oh, you want to start talking about adultery? Yeah, that happens in your mind. Yeah, it's a precursor to actually fulfilling it and living it out. Guard your minds. He says, there are going to be things where if you love me and you want to grow, you leave them. He says, flee from sexual immorality. And you can't even read the New Testament. It seems like every three or four pages, it's like flee fornication. Flee sexual immorality. The root word being pornea. He goes, flee it. If you've ever read through the story of Joseph, can you imagine the character and the godly courage it takes for day after day to be pursued and then to flee? We're living in it. It might not be real, and it might not be the king's wife, but every day you are being pursued. And listen, one leads to death. And one leads to life because that life is patterned after how God designed it. He says every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's a, he said there's, a, there's, a, there's, different, there's this price tags for sin. And the price tag on sexual sin is so high because it's against your body. And not only your body, but the person that you were glued to. He says, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit within you. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is what's crazy. Is you read stories like I'm getting ready to read to you, and you, you're like, surely that, just, that can't even be true. From the book, The Light and the Glory by Marshall and Manuel, he talks about when they landed at Jamestown in the early 1600s. I mean, it was a reasonable place to land because it was the piece of land sticking out the farthest. They could get the boats up in the channel. Seemed like a good place, right? Good place to land. It says this, from the steaming and fetid swamps all around them emanated a variety of diseases. They're below sea level. They're at sea level. The river water turned brackish and almost all newcomers, and many of those more acclimated became deathly ill, which raises another Virginia paradox. Why did they not move the site of the settlement? After the second summer made it even more obvious that the soaring death rate was directly related to Jamestown's dismal location. There was even more evidence in the fact that John Smith and his men returned from their summer expeditions in excellent health. The fact was, they did consider moving. The suggestion had come up more than on, one more, on one, more than one occasion. But each time, it seemed just too much trouble. It was easier to repair than to rebuild. And so they stayed, and they suffered out the summers and died. And the death rate in Virginia that second year was incredibly even higher than the first. Out of every 10 people who embarked for the new world, nine would die. There's some of you, you're in here right now, and you're considering, you're like, okay, been in church my whole life. I've no, I know, I know that that's his design. 
Some of you, I'm not for sure if I believe it. Like there's a lot of stuff in culture where I think we're, we're wiser than God. We figured some stuff out. It's just an old antiquated book. And for those of you, I pray that God would change your heart and he would redeem your thoughts. And you would understand that his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And be humble and admit, I'm mere human and he's God. And you'd say, I know it. I believe that his pattern, the way he's designed marriage and relationships to function, I believe that. And as we walk towards grow, growing in love, growing in service, growing one another so that we can have a healthy functional relationships and healthy functional marriages that are God-honoring. I pray as you are back here and you, you look over towards grow that you're, you're like, oh, this is just too much trouble. I'll just stay here and die. Isn't it crazy when we read historical accounts that we do the same thing in our lives? I'm just going to stay here and let sin kill me. And as you move over to grow, we would just be a church that just flourishes, man. All of these young couples can learn from the older couples that have gained some wisdom and can model it for them. Three, four hundred students come back in the fall and we can get them placed into homes just where they build relationships and they understand these things and they can have it modeled for them that maybe none of them did. So many of us have been affected by divorce. They, they come back in the fall and maybe they've never known a functional relationship. They've never seen one and we can provide that for them. But in order to do that, I believe this with all my heart. Everyone, but especially men, in order to grow, you're going to have to leave some stuff behind and change patterns and models in your life. Listen, if this is you, she'll never respect you because you don't look like Jesus. There's some of you, she wants to follow Jesus with everything in her, and you just won't. I pray for you today. We've prayed all week. The elders, the pastors here, the teaching team, we've, we've prayed that God would just mend, mend marriages that are broken. That he would strengthen the ones that are going well. And that the ones that are great would just be leveraged to make disciples for Jesus Christ. Those of you serving communion, if you would, go ahead and, and make your way to your stations. So what, what we do here every week is we take communion together. And what it is... It's us coming to the table like Jesus modeled, modeled for his disciples. That's why we do it. And when we come and we take the bread, it's Christ's body broken for us. We remember what he did in loving us, and the sacrifice that he made to love us. And as we take the juice, the wine, we remember his blood poured out for us so that we can be forgiven. And those of you that, that you may be newer here, you don't know we're going to have people along the sides. I know in a, in a message like this, some of you, your hearts are heavy. And if you just want somebody to pray with, I pray that you would make your way to the sides. You would pray with somebody and that you would allow us to help you. What are some of the three bravest words that people speak? I need help. We need help. So if you would, please go ahead and stand.
and make your way to the table.